So it's been a wonderful afternoon so far, and uh, the Lord is speaking and the Lord is working. And you know, there are some points in time and some moments where God is moving, and I'm not saying if you don't respond, there's no hope, but there are significant times where it's important to give yourself and respond. I I kind of say facetiously, you know, the Apostle Thomas missed one meeting, Jesus pitched up, and ever since then he's been known as Doubting Thomas. You know, he missed one moment. (laughs) God's grace is bigger, but there are moments we shouldn't miss. And I believe today is one of those moments where the Lord wants to do something in continuing His work in us and taking us forward into more of Him. And in many ways, what I want to share today uh, builds on what I shared last week. So those who weren't here or forgot or weren't listening, um, I used uh, a picture of the Sistine Chapel, how before it was restored in the 1980s, the pictures were dark and, and gloomy and faded, but once they were restored, the true colors came out, and the colors were actually vibrant and exciting, and the way people viewed the art was transformed, and the building was transformed, and there's two aspects of that. One is God is busy transforming and restoring in us a right view of himself, because unless we have a true revelation of who he is, we don't understand who we are and we don't understand our purpose. And all the theology and all the doctrine in the world, I've been saying so often recently, I'm not obsessed with doctrine. Doctrine is just a tool to get to know Jesus better. Correct doctrine is important, but it's not the end in itself. And we need to have this beautiful revelation of of the beauty and the power and the magnificence of Jesus. And some of those songs today were, were a kind of man's pathetic attempt to try and reveal something. The good songs, but even our best songs, are a pathetic attempt to reveal the power and the wonder and the beauty of Jesus. But the other aspect of it is um, the reason that in the Middle Ages they, they built these temples and these churches so glorious and so beautiful and decorated them like they did is they said the house of God should reflect something of the glory of God. And they were right, but they got the wrong house. We are the household of God. And there's something that as we get a right revelation of Jesus and allow that to be absorbed into our identity and our character, so we begin to truly reflect to others the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. I've I've been watching stuff and reading stuff recently, and a lot of atheists who are against Christians are condemning Christians because Christians are mean-spirited and and judgmental. And I said, some people who call themselves Christians are. And maybe some Christians are, but only when they're not truly reflecting Jesus. They're reflecting an ideology or a worldview or a doctrine, but they're not reflecting a true revelation of Jesus. And I want to talk a bit more about that today. And uh, I'm going to start off by reading from... Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, which you may think a bit strange because initially it's addressed to elders. But elders, I want to let you into a secret. Elders are really no different to the rest of you. We are not a, a different species. And we're not immune to temptation and struggle and attack. We put our trousers on one leg at a time like everybody else. 
We have the same weaknesses. We face the same challenges. We make often the same mistakes. And we fail, dare I say it, just as often. But, as elders, hopefully, there's a maturity and a degree of revelation where we can say, maybe we're one step further along the road and we're doing our best and we're setting an example on how to follow Jesus in our successes and in our failures. Do you know you can set an example in how you fail? Because one thing is for sure, we're all going to fail at some point. It's inevitable. Okay, apart from me. My nickname is Nobody, because nobody's perfect. <laughs> so this is, this, bear in mind that this instruction is written by Peter, and we go, whoa, Peter. No, no, this is Peter, who Jesus turned around to one day and said, get behind me, Satan. This is Peter who denied Christ three times. This is Peter who Paul publicly, publicly rebuked for being a hypocrite. This is Peter who was very familiar with putting his foot in his mouth and with failing. He was an expert in failing. But it's also the Peter who experienced the wonderful powerful, restoring love of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus took him aside and restored him back and said, feed my sheep, look after my people. Peter, I know you failed, but it hasn't disqualified you because I'm restoring you. This is, so this is the Peter who writes this, not some perfect saint Peter that, that has some standard that we can't attain to, attain to, but a man who knew what it was like to wrestle with his own flesh and temptation and failure. A man who, when Jesus said, do you really love me, couldn't say wholeheartedly, yes, I do, because he was so broken and afraid that he was going to fail again. That's the Peter who's writing this. And he says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Now, he says the word also here, so it's not a special privilege just for Peter. The implication is, this is for all of us, that we will be partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed. That's where Jesus is taking us. He's taking us from one degree of glory to another. As much or as little as we shine Jesus now. How many of you think you shine Jesus a little bit at times on your good days? <laughs> yeah. Maybe a little bit of Jesus you shine. How many of you would love to shine Jesus more? How many of you would love to shine Jesus perfectly? Well, that's where he's taking us. That's where he's taking us. And that's such a consolation for me that fails to even shine Jesus properly to my wife most days. That he's taking me on this journey of reflecting him better and better. And that, as I said, isn't a promise just for elders or just for Peter or just for apostles. It's the promise and the hope of every single one of us. 
He said, be shepherd or shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. In other words, watching over, looking after. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Okay, just want to address the elders at the moment. How many of you are doing it because you have to? <laughs> so sometimes we don't feel like it and we do it in our, that's life isn't it sometimes we do the right thing because we feel like it and sometimes we do the right thing because we know it's the right thing and then we hope that our hearts come into line with our obedience you know when I was a teenager um, God spoke to me and I was in a meeting and somebody asked who feels called to eldership one day and inside there was an absolute conviction that God had called me to eldership. And my brain went, no way, you've got to be a lunatic to be an elder. Which kind of still kind of true, but... <laughs> and for 15 years, I promise, 15 years, I tried to run away from the calling of God on my life because I didn't want to be an elder. I saw the pain, the frustration, the hard work, the lack of gratitude, all of those things that elders often experience. I said, you've got to be an idiot. I can go and get a job and make money. And it took a lot of discipline and a lot of the processes of God and a lot of pain before I came to a place. I said, God, I'm willing. And whether it's eldership or worship leader, youth leader, kids worker, coffee server, toilet cleaner, student, worker, whatever it is the Lord is asking you to do, his heart is that you would do it willingly for him, not under compulsion. But when you don't feel like it, you will do it until you're willing to do it. Not for gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So primarily, our role is not to be the boss, not to say, do what I do, or, or do what I say. It's to live our lives in such a way that with conviction, we can say, imitate us as we imitate Christ. Follow our example. Not that we are perfect, but hopefully we're getting it right more than we're getting it wrong. But can I say, if, if you had to say to me, boil down in one thing, what the job of an elder is, I'd say the job of an elder is to set an example. It's to show Jesus, to make it easier for other people to know what it's like to follow Jesus. Yes, elders, you know, set doctrine, we, we're involved in discipline, we hear God for the direct, all, all of, but all of that in essence is simply setting an example of how to live our lives. Because husbands, you're called to government. You're called to govern your households. All of us need direction for our lives. We're all called to be priests in God's household. And so, elders are called to set an example. It says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When the chief shepherd appears, and we forget this sometimes, who leads just Jen? Andrew Selly does not lead Josh Jan. Andrew Selly is an under-shepherd. Who leads this congregation? Not Grant Baker. Grant Baker is an under-shepherd of an under-shepherd. <laughs> He's on Andrew's team, and as Andrew 
as Andrew is an under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus, then under Andrew is Grant, and under Grant is the team. But we all recognize that Jesus is the great shepherd. We answer to him. Imagine, who's got young kids? Imagine you ask me to babysit one night, and you go out for the night, and you say, my kid, this is what they eat, this is the bedtime, this is... And then as soon as you've gone, I think, I know better than you. And I look after your kids in the way that I think is best. And when you come back, they're hopped up on Coke and sweets and chocolate. They've been watching The Exorcist. Uh, <laughs> I've left them to their own devices. You know, when you get back, how pleased are you going to be with me? Am I going to be the object of your wrath? Absolutely. And in the same way as elders, I recognize this. The Lord Jesus has said, I've gone away for a while. Can you look after my kids? But do it the way I tell you to do, and I'll check in on you regularly. And when he returns and says, so how did you look after my kids? What example did you set? How did you teach them? How did you love them? If I have not represented him well, I will be the object of his wrath. Gone quiet. But we understand this as elders. We understand the weight of representing Jesus to people. But in a similar way, and I think um, to quote the book of Spider-Man, Verse 15, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> there is a sense that all of us have been given great power and all of us have been given a great responsibility because the job of all of us to some degree or another is to represent Christ to others, whether it be to our own kids, our neighbors, our friends. The Great Commission, go and make disciples. In other words, go and look after people. But the great shepherd will appear and will reward those who've been faithful. Likewise, so that's to the elders. And he says, for the rest of you, the younger ones, in other words, be subject to the elders. Submit willingly to their authority just as they submit willingly to the authority of Jesus and to each other. And the key to this for elders, because he then says all of you, the key, whether you're an elder, deacon, home group leader, saint, toilet cleaner, kids church worker, sound guy, sound girl, worship leader, it doesn't matter. The key is clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. That is the key, clothing yourself with humility. And the picture there is quite a simple one, clothing yourself doesn't mean you have it automatically. It's a choice to put it on. And humility is something we have to choose because pride is something that is inherently seeking to take over every man, woman, and child on this planet. It was the first sin committed by Satan who was at the very throne of God the greatest of all the angels, and said, it's not enough, I deserve more. That's pride, right? I deserve more than I've got. And then with Adam and Eve, what was, what was at the root of what they did? We deserve more. 
And what is the root of every child who says, that's not fair? So we have to continually clothe ourselves in humility. Philippians 2 tells us, let your attitude be that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant, made himself nothing, emptied himself. God himself chose to become nothing and submit himself to the Father. And we go, well, I don't know if I can submit to elders because, you know, I don't know. It's like, man, if Jesus can do it, who's in very nature God, what? Who are we to think we can't make ourselves nothing? And that isn't just a one-way thing. This isn't an elder saying, you guys better make yourself nothing and obey the elders. Because it's everybody. The elders have got to submit themselves and make themselves nothing. It's a servant leadership role. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, here's one of those little... um, paradoxes of scripture. If I ask you to define define grace, many of you would say it's the undeserved favor of God. How many of you would understand grace is undeserved favor? So if it's undeserved, you get it regardless of what you do, right? It's not a reward, it's undeserved. And yet here, it seems to be indicating that you can receive more grace depending on how you position yourself. Not as a reward but just as you are not putting yourself in a place to be an obstacle to the natural flow of God's grace. Because God's desire is to pour his grace upon you. In John's gospel, it says, this is our our life, that it's grace upon grace upon grace. That should be our experience. Just like um, waves crashing on the shore, there's a wave of grace that crashes. And when when you've recovered from that, another wave of grace crashes. But we can position ourselves against that, and pride will do that, and God opposes the proud. That's quite a scary statement for those of us who understand it. If God is for me, who can be against me? Ah, But if God's opposing you, who can be for you? It is scary. Some of us, I can guarantee you right now, some of us may be rebuking demons for what's going on in our lives, And it's not demons you need to rebuke because it's God who's doing it. Why? Because he's coming against your pride because pride will kill you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Again, there's a a close parallel here with the Philippians 2 chapter. Jesus emptied himself, made himself nothing, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, what did God do? And gave him a name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. You know, on the last day, every single person is going to bow before Jesus and says, Lord. Some will do it willingly, some will do it unwillingly. But we're all doing it. And there's a parallel here. Jesus, Paul writes that, showing us what Jesus did and saying, let your attitude be the same. 
that if you want to be exalted in God's eyes, if you want this process of glorification, if you want to be made more like Jesus, the way to do it is humility and submission. It's to submit to God's purposes. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. And when you humble yourself under his mighty hand, sometimes it's really pleasant. And other times, not so pleasant. Is this making sense? If it's not, we're all in big trouble. You see, when we go through difficulty, how many of you say, I've been going through difficulties recently? And many of us have. I've had health problems, uh, double COVID, and my wife's been sick, and all kinds of stuff going on, and finances not coming through that should have come through. And a lot of us have have been dealing with problems of health, relationship, finances, all kinds of things. And, And Andrew mentioned recently about as a church, it seems like we're coming uh, under a degree of assault by the evil, evil one. And there is little doubt in my mind that that is true. But when bad things happen, I don't think it's always essential to know why. Is this God? Is this the devil? Is this just a result of my own stupidity? Because sometimes you suffer, it's not God or the devil, it's just you've made stupid choices. (laughs) I had a friend who got alcohol poisoning uh, on a a church camp. (laughs) Yeah. A few of us had been having a few drinks. And uh, in the middle of the night, somebody woke me up because I was one of the youth leaders and said, Hey, Mike, hey, Mike, Ravi's got alcohol poisoning and he's really sick. Will you come and pray for him? I said, no. I don't think God will heal him. I think he has to go through this. Oh, is, is it, it's not the devil. It's not God. It's the guy drank too much alcohol in a short time. This is what happens. It's the result of his stupidity, and hopefully his pain will teach him a lesson not to be so stupid in the future. But I think it's less, it can be good to know what, Why? It can be good, but I don't think that's the most important thing. The most important thing is whatever I'm going through is to say, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know if I'm to blame, if somebody else is to blame. Because blame isn't important. You know, a really helpful thing is to distinguish blame from responsibility. Instead of saying whose fault it is, say whose responsibility is it? And right now today, it's my responsibility to respond correctly to my situation. And I am going to choose to submit myself and humble myself under the mighty hand of God because I don't know how I got here, but there's only one person who can tell me how to get out. You know, I have a friend on the Isle of Man, Adrian Porter, great guy, funny guy. How many of you know Adrian? And years ago, he used to work with addicts and alcoholics. Um... And he was talking to one guy, and this one guy was asking Adrian about, you know, how long have you been sober? You know, what's your story? And, and Adrian was like saying, no, I've never been an alcoholic. I, I've never drunk. And this guy said to him, 
well, how can you help me if you've never known what it's like to be an alcoholic? And Adrian's answer was brilliant. He said, you don't need an expert on being an alcoholic. You need an expert on being sober. (laughs) And there's a sense of where we've come from is less important than where we're going. And I know that the hand of God and good people around me can help lead me out of this maze that I've got in. When I can't see a way out, God can, and often other people can as well. I will submit and humble myself under the mighty hand of God, which is the right thing to do. It's not always the easy thing to do. Have you noticed the ways of God are simple, but they're not always easy? They're not... If, If it's confusing and complicated, you've probably got it wrong. God's ways are pretty simple. They're just not easy. And so we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And that means doing things God's way. So let's just have a look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. And again, this is Paul writing to Timothy, a young man who he's brought into leadership. And he's saying, as a leader, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And those, those are wonderful touchstones for us. Am I representing Jesus well in my speech? Am I, am I reflecting well in my conduct, in my love, in my faith, and in my purity? And that, that's the role of leaders. That's the role of parents. That's the role of teachers. That's the role of anybody who's got an influence over somebody else. But sometimes we get it wrong. And Paul knew that sometimes we'd get it wrong. So he, he then said, well, what happens when we miss it? So go to 1 Timothy 5. And he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Elders can get accused of all kinds of things all the time. And we want to stop false accusations and gossip. But he goes on to the next verse. So what he's not saying is cover up any wrongdoing by the elders. He said, if it's a genuine accusation, let's deal with it. And he says, as for those who persist in sin, this is elders, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So if an elder persists in sin or if the elder's got serious sin, He gets rebuked in front of everybody. Why? That word example again. So that people can see an example of God's discipline that's brought in love. And then in an ideal world, as that elder submits himself under the mighty hand of God, submits himself to the discipline of the eldership team in the church and responds well, the church sees somebody respond, repent, and be restored. And so even in our failure, the sin isn't setting an example, but our response to failure is an example. And so what happens is by making that public, it's not to belittle somebody, but it's first to show everybody the seriousness of sin, but secondly to show the redemptive, restorative nature of our God. Does that make sense? For those of you petrified right now, it doesn't say if a saint sins, rebuke him in front of everybody, okay? With great, respo- with great power comes great responsibility. More is asked of those who, who, who would set themselves up in leadership.
So let's go back to 1 Peter. So cast all your anxieties, all your worries on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I've, I've said this before, but I think it's, it bears saying again. The interesting thing, and, and, and we know um, in Africa, those of us who've been to the Kruger Park and other places, lions don't roar while they're hunting. They're silent when they're hunting. But Paul is referring to a roaring lion. When do lions roar at prey? When prey are in a secure place that the lion can't get hold of, the lion will roar to panic the prey so it runs out of its secure place and then is easily destroyed. And the devil does have power. He's, you know, some, the devil has no power. The devil's quite powerful, man. He's more powerful than me. He's more powerful than you. He's not more powerful than Jesus. But my safe place that he can't destroy me is in Christ. And what he's determined to do is to see me in my panic and in my temptation and in whatever is to step outside of Christ so that he can devour me. And that devouring can be, he'll destroy you. He's got many strategies. One is temptation to sin. Another is uh, persecution. Another is comfort. The devil will give you what you want to make you comfortable. Because comfort is the enemy of progress. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And here he's talking primarily about persecution, but it can apply to all kinds of things, temptations, uh, COVID, whatever it may be, what you're going through, this may surprise you. You are not the only one. Everything you go through is common to man. Your particular variety may be different to somebody else's. And it's so common to man that Hebrews tells us there is nothing that you face that Jesus hasn't faced. Is he is not a priest who is in, unable to sympathize with us because every temptation, every suffering that you could possibly under, undergo, he's already endured it and overcome it for you. And I am not strong enough to resist temptation. I'm going to confess that to you now. For me, the way I eliminate temptation is to give in to it. May West famously said, when, when, when I have the choice between two evils, I choose the one I haven't done before. <laughs> but I'm not strong enough to overcome temptation. But Jesus did and is. And so I need the presence and power of Jesus in my life. Otherwise, I'm going to fall regularly. And after you have suffered a little while, see, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't promise no suffering. In fact, it promises suffering. And Romans 5 tells us, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. 
Another scary verse is, all those who suffer for doing what is right, yeah? If you suffer for what... So, in other words, if you do the right thing and you suffer for it, the Bible tells us it is the grace of God. In other words, it's the undeserved favor of God that you should suffer. Wait a minute. How many of you have ever suffered for doing what is right? But we've got, to, we've got to see suffering even through a different lens. Not as the be-all and end-all, but as something that doesn't determine our identity or the identity of God, but which God can use to shape us to be more like him. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, that's your calling. You know, when you speak to people, what are you called to? Well, I'm called to preach. I'm called to teach. Those are small things. Those are little things. Actually, what's your calling? Your calling is his eternal glory in Christ. He himself will restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him be the rulership. And so what we see here is Paul is writing, and he's saying, guys, set an example. Be Christ-like. Whatever comes your way, whether it be persecution, temptation, the Lord's discipline, whatever it may be, even if you're suffering, endure and submit yourself under God's mighty hand, and then in the right time. And the, the, the language there or the idea is similar to in Luke. In Luke it says, in the fullness of time, Christ came. For hundreds of years, for over 400 years, Israel had been waiting for the Messiah. And then at the perfect time, the Father sent him. Saying, in the perfect time, God will. And what are those words? Can we look at those words again? It, this is what happens if we submit ourselves and humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. And that's what God wants to do in your life. And I want to look at those four words. I, I don't too much often like going into the Greek because the translation in your Bible generally is a really good translation. But the word restore here speaks of completion, or perfection, or preparing something for its proper use, or bringing it into its proper condition, either for the first time, or after a lapse, or failure. Putting something, bringing something in its proper condition for its proper use. To confirm means to fix firmly. The, the Greek word here can be used for a stake that you tie a plant to. And I think that's a picture in Cape Town we understand full well, right? If you want your tree to grow upright in Cape Town, if you don't tie it to a stake, it's not strong enough to withstand the winds. And with all the winds of doctrine and temptation and, and, and the world in which we live in and all of the things that are happen, none of us are strong enough to stand firm and grow straight but if we submit ourselves under God's mighty hand, he will come and he will tie ourselves to him 
And he will be the, the, the stake that determines the direction of our growth. Isn't that amazing? He will strengthen us. That speaks of being grounded, of, of being, uh, and to be established, laying a foundation or being rooted in something. Again, we, like a, a tree, he says, I will grow deep roots in you. And when that tree has grown strong enough that it no longer needs the stake, unless it's developed a deep root system, the first big wind and the tree's gone. And so God's saying, I'm going to come and give, give you your proper purpose, your proper place, and I'm going to strengthen and establish you to do what I've called you to do. That is his promise. If we are those who will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, those who will say, God, I don't know why you're doing what you're doing, but I will submit to your processes. I will submit to your discipline. I will submit to your ways, no matter how difficult it may be. And I believe the Lord wants to, to minister to us this afternoon. But before he does, I want to talk about one person who's been an incredible godly example to us of doing exactly what this passage is talking about. And that's Hannes. So Hannes was leading this congregation. How long were you leading the congregation? Year and a half. And he was leading this congregation because he'd faithfully given himself to serving this congregation for a long time. He first joined Melt Boss when I was leading. And he was an incredible servant to me. He served me so well. And I would tune him and rebuke him and try and correct him and, and, and bring change. And he would always receive it. He was an incredible godly man. And, you know, when Andrew was asking me about somebody to lead the congregation, and he said, what do you think of Hannes? And I'm embarrassing him now, but that's okay. I said, it's interesting. There are pockets of life in the congregation. And if I look at where those pockets are, the where Hannes has been. The youth has exploded. Hannes was leading the youth. Worship, when Hannes leads. Hannes' home group, boom. Wherever he goes, there's something of, of the presence of God. And it's not because he's the most gifted guy in the world, although he's pretty gifted. It was because he was doing his best to live as an example and be faithful to Jesus. And so he started leading the congregation, and then 18 months ago, the Lord convicted him of one area, of his life, where he wasn't setting an example. One area of sin where the devil had got a foothold. And nobody needed to know because it was a secret. But he got such a conviction of God. He said, I, I have to bring this into the light. And in his failure, he set an example to us of how to deal with sin. And so he spoke to his wife and he repented to his wife which is scary enough. <laughs> of all the people in the world, I'll repent to anybody except my own wife. <laughs> and then he went to the elders. He went to Andrew and some of the senior elders, and he confessed to them. And because it was an ongoing thing, something it wasn't a one-off, we, we agreed and he agreed. I'm disqualified from leading the people of God right now because I, I'm not living an example in this one area of my life. And so we stepped him down off eldership. And then the next hard thing he had to do in submitting 
under the mighty hand of God, we stand here and tell everybody, I have failed, I've sinned, I've let you down, I've been dishonest with you, I've pretended to be something I haven't in this one area of my life. And he did that, not knowing if he'd ever come back onto eldership again, not knowing if he'd lose his job. He knew that it could cost him everything. Potentially it could cost him his job, his ministry, his wife, the respect of his friends. It could have cost him everything. And he said, I've got a choice. I can hide this or I can submit under the mighty hand of God. And he said, even in his moment, that I think he would, he would probably say is his greatest failure in ministry. He set an example of how to deal in failure. And for the last 18 months, he has submitted to the eldership team every step of the way. We said, we want you to go and visit somebody regularly for counseling, somebody you didn't even really know. I'll do it. We want you to do admin. I'll do it. That's probably the hardest of the lot. <laughs> and then March of this year, we brought him back onto eldership, but not leading the congregation. And he had to work on another man's team, somebody very different. Somebody who maybe frustrated him at times. Somebody with a very different gift makeup. And he submitted joyfully to Grant and the team. And he set an example for all of us. And because he humbled himself, he was willing to become of no reputation in all of our eyes. Because of that, and submitting and humbling self under God's mighty hand, God said, I will restore you. I will strengthen you. I will confirm you. And I think all of us, I, I see, the, I see the, the looks in many of your faces and the nods. You're not looking at Hannah's as, oh yeah, that guy who failed. You're looking at the guy who, wow. He responded to that so well. And I'm excited today to announce that next week, Andrew Selly's going to be visiting us to minister. And we're going to be fully restoring Hannes back in the calling of God on his life. And he's going to be leading this congregation. <laughs> And that's, that's the response there should be. That's the response there should be. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes something about a brother. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we read about a guy who's been sleeping with his stepmother, and he's completely unrepentant, and they put him out of the church. And eventually, it seems, this guy repented and came back. And Paul says, receive him like a brother, and just with love as though he'd never sinned. And that's the heart of Jesus. Jesus is in the restoration business. And the devil will lie to you and say, if you let that thing out, you will be rejected, you'll lose everything. No, you'll lose everything unless you humble yourself under God's mighty hand. And I'm so stoked because 
He's the same man he used to be, but he's also not. In this process, he's become more Christ-like. In this process, God has chiseled some edges off him. And he's doing this eagerly. I don't know, we must be... They're about to have a kid. And we'll pray for them next week. But guys, I'm asking you to support them in prayer. Pray for them, encourage them, serve them, especially when the baby arrives. Because as much as Hannes leads, Mariska is by his side. And there's a great price to pay. And they're going to have to juggle parenthood and leading us lot. But it's been, a one, it's been wonderful to see the journey. And we also want to bless and honor Grant and Lorna, who led us in the meantime. With skilled hands and integrity of heart. And it's been wonderful to see. And God really does work all things for the good of those who love him. And whilst ideally, Hannes would never have stepped down, God stepped in and used that and has done things under Grant's leadership that I think he couldn't have done under Hannes's and shaped us and brought us to who we are. And a lot of us here are different because of their leadership. They're still going to be amongst us. They're not leaving. They're still going to be in. And again, again, something of the Christ-likeness. Having led this team... Grant is now saying, I am so excited and happy to now serve on Hannes' team. Not, not a wrestling and jostling for position. And so that's an example for us. And I want to say this. If you've got a question, if you've got a concern, if you're not excited, if you've got a biblical reason why Hannes shouldn't be taking over the congregation, taking over captaining the team again, come speak to us. Don't gossip, don't slander, and don't hold those questions in your heart. Come speak to us and let's, let's work it through. But in this, can you see, in one sense, the way an elder lives is an example when he does things well. But even when we fail we can still show a godly example. And Hannes is a godly example that's available to all of us. That whether we've fallen into sin, whether we're, we're, we're confused about what's happening, whether, you know, the devil, we feel like the devil's about to chop our, you know, bite our heads off, whatever it is, I would urge each of us to make a conscious decision today. I'm going to humble myself under the mighty hand of God. Allow his processes. And in due time, due time might mean tomorrow, it might mean 10 years from now. One lesson I've learned over the last few years, I've often preached on breakthrough. Sometimes, if you're sick, your breakthrough can be healing. And sometimes your breakthrough can become handling that sickness with joy. If you're financially destitute, your breakthrough could be riches or it could be learning to be content with nothing. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Three times he prayed that God would take it away. His breakthrough was when God said, my grace is sufficient. But either way, you're in grace and you have the joy and the power to continue under God's mighty hand. 
And so I want to ask, if this message is resonating in your spirit right now, there's something in it. Maybe you've never submitted under, you've never submitted your life to God. Maybe you've always lived for your ways, your priorities. You say, no, I need the presence of God in my life. And I no, want to, no longer want to live for me. I want to submit my life to him. I want to humble myself and make Jesus Lord. Maybe you've, that's something you've never done before. Or you are a follower of Jesus. But for whatever reason, you've been struggling to submit to the purposes of God because you don't understand them or they're too difficult or they don't suit you or you think you know better. Today is the day to humble ourselves. I'll tell you one last story. Young man I was speaking to, I was having coffee with him and he said, Mike, I've been praying and I've asked the Lord to humble me. I said, oh, don't do that. (laughs) Oh, don't do that. Rather humble yourself. Because if you ask the Lord to do it, it's going to be painful. And it was. From being somebody who was leading a congregation, he messed up, he lost everything. And God humbled him so bad. It's so much easier when you humble yourself. Because if you humble yourself, he will raise you up. I just feel this is a, one of those moments. We can, we can preach the good news of restoration and glory and all of that. And this is that message. But if we truly want to glorify God, if we want to truly receive what, Paul, what Peter was talking about, if we really want to be rooted and established and strengthened and restored, it starts with humbling ourselves and saying, God, have your way with me. And if you know you need to respond to the Lord and say that tonight, I'd love you just to stand where you are right now. Don't wait. Just stand as a sign of God. I don't even care what the people around me think. <laughs> I'm going to... He wasn't ready for this. Hannes, come pray for us. You can't. Submit yourself under God's mighty hand. <laughs> Singapore, you've got seven days left. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful thing that's been announced, but I sense that tonight it'll be easy for many not to respond. And uh, the truth is that leaders among us, God assigns to us trials that form us. And so humbling yourself is actually acknowledging your need. So I'm going to call again, the same call that Mike, is God speaking to you? And the question is not why, but how do I respond? Respond. Let's, let's have a, let's, this is part of our worship. So I actually want you even to lift your hands. And what I've learned is, when something's really pressing me and all I want is that thing to go away, it takes all of my might to say, God, I thank you for it. And you kiss your trials. You kiss those things that are, that are pressing you and you say, God, form me. Have your worship. 
receive what you're after in me and becomes worship to God. Just do that. Just offer to him yourself. Hannah said they waved their arms and it was themselves. Just offer yourself. And I feel like there's one woman, it's like I heard you praying this morning, you de- you, you, like you were desperately crying out to God, and there's pressure on you, and you're wrestling for hope. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to call you out to come here, but I sense God's carrying someone on his heart. And uh, Spirit of the living God, would you fall upon that person? And we release, Lord, your very, the virtue of hope, and we release the virtue of life in your name. I said earlier, the ways of God are simple, but they're not easy. And I sense there's some people here, and they're going, I'd love to be able to do what you've said. I just can't. It's too hard. And the Lord doesn't need your ability, he needs your willingness. There's a song by Third Day. And the chorus says this. Please take, me, please take from me my life when I don't have the strength to give it away to you. And there's times where we, we say to the Lord, Lord, I wish I could, I, it's just too difficult. And in those moments, all the Lord needs is, Lord... I can't do it. Will you come and do it for me? And he's so gracious. Let's just be those who are willing to give away our lives so that we can receive the lives that he has for us. Mm.